Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We're in week eight of our series, Outsiders, and we're going to finish up Acts chapter 10 today. And not the series, but the Acts chapter 10, an incredible story that's really the focal point of this entire series, I think. And today we're going to look at, I think, a very thought-provoking question. We're going to focus on this question. What do you do when everything you've ever believed gets turned upside down? What do you do when everything you've ever believed gets turned upside down? We're going to see this very clearly in Acts chapter 10 today. And it's a, it's a serious question, but on the lighter side, this is what being a kid is. What you thought as a kid, you probably, most of those things don't think anymore because your information has gotten better, your experience has told you otherwise. I found some examples of this um, to get started on a website called BoardPanda.com. So if you're interested in wasting a lot of time on the internet, BoardPanda.com uh, is where I found some of these. And these are people that submitted, this is what I used to believe as a kid, and obviously it's not true because life, right? So here's a few examples to answer this question, sort of in a lighthearted way as we get going. One person said, I used to believe as a kid that teachers lived at school inside of their classrooms. And if you're a teacher, you probably think, well, that's kind of true, right? So there you go. So it's not completely inaccurate. Uh, One person said, when I was four years old, my mom was nine months pregnant with my brother. We got into a minor car accident that forced her into labor. So until about third grade, I thought you had to get into a car accident to have a baby. Another person said, I thought women got pregnant by overeating, so I kept telling my mom to eat more and more so I could have a little brother. Uh, So another person said, when I was a kid, I thought that MC Hammer's song, You Can't Touch This, was a warning to kids not to play with hammers. Um, Someone, a very personal one here, but this person said, I used to think that if a child wore glasses, that that child was smart. But then a girl named Mary Beth got glasses, and I knew she wasn't smart, so there went my glasses equals smart theory. Uh, One person said, I figured the moon was made out of ice, and so it only came out at night so the sun wouldn't melt it. Interesting. And here's the last one from this website. It says this, we had very ill-fitting windows when I was a child. My parents would often complain about keeping the curtains closed to keep the drafts out. I thought they were saying giraffes. So I spent my childhood living in fear that giraffes roamed around the neighborhood and would smash through the windows if they were uncovered. So there you go. What do you do when everything you've ever believed gets turned upside down? It happens to kids all the time. But think about this. Until about 500 years ago, most of the world thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Think about that. That's less than 500 years ago that Nicholas Copernicus had, well, there were others in ancient times that had similar thoughts, but he was the one that really fleshed it out over a decade's worth of research and work um, in the 1530s. So again, 500 years ago, we would have thought that we revolve around the sun, and sometimes we still think the world revolves around us too, right? 
Um, but he thought that, and he, he did this study sort of in secret, really for fear of being found out you know, as a fool by other people in the scientific community, but also for fear of the religious community who believed that the, earth, that the, the sun went around the earth. And so Nicholas Copernicus, right before he died in the 1540s, finally published, really on his deathbed, published his findings that we just take for granted now that they're so obvious now, 500 years later. But that's a great example of when everything you believe is called into question, it can really shake you. It can really shake you to the foundation and the core of who you are. So today as we get into Acts chapter 10, we're going to see that Peter, the apostle Peter, wrestled with this question in a very serious, foundational way through a vision that he has on a rooftop. Everything that he thought, everything he believed, everything that he was taught as a child, now in this vision on a rooftop, leads him on really what we're going to look at, a five-step progression to overthrow everything he thought about life, about faith, about God. And I think that as we adopt this same five-step progression today, it can help us when we're faced with this similar question. What do you do when everything you ever believe gets turned upside down? So Peter's progression, this five-step progression, starts simply with prayer. And it's interesting that it starts here, but let's start with this verse, Acts 10, verse 9. Um, and so we, we've been looking at Cornelius the last two weeks, who's an outsider. He's a non-Jew who gets a vision from an angel about a man named Peter. So pick it up at Acts 10, verse 9. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray, it was about noon. So I'm going to be quick on this first point, but let me just say this. Prayer is always a good starting point when you're faced with difficult questions. Prayer is always the right next step. It's always the appropriate place to go, the appropriate thing to do when faced with these types of situations. If, if I want answers and clarity, prayer is a good place to go. If we have issues in our lives, prayer is a good place to go. If I'm sad or frustrated or confused about something, prayer is always a good place to go. If I need strength or encouragement, prayer is a good place to go. Or even in Peter's situation, in a way, if my beliefs are called into question or I'm starting to wonder or doubt or worry, prayer is always a good place to go. But what's strange about Peter in prayer here is that it's his time in prayer that started his doubting of everything he's ever known and believed. It wasn't that he went into this time of prayer saying, okay, I've heard this, and I've thought this, and i felt this, and I'm not sure. It's like, no, in this time of prayer, he has a vision that throws everything off in his life. Peter, as we know, is a devout Jew, so he believes in the law of God. He obeys the law, the customs, the traditions, everything about it, he's believed what was written. But we also know that he's put his faith in Jesus, which is a step for him. It's something different. A majority of his other brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith have not done that. So we've already seen he has the ability to stretch, but he's about to really be stretched here in Acts chapter 10. He's about to have everything about his belief system confronted with huge questions. But the power of prayer gives us time to ponder big life questions. It gives us time to pray through, think through, sit through um, different things that we face. So it's always a good place to go. So let me just say, don't neglect prayer in your life. You need that time with God. Because I know this sounds mystical and sp super spiritual, but this is absolutely true. In that time of prayer, God can speak to you. I believe in those times of prayer, God will speak to you if you're open and listening for his voice. Now, what's that going to sound like? 
I don't know. Probably it's going to sound like you, but you're going to think, that sounds like me, but it doesn't sound like me. Have you ever had those moments before? I've had, I've had those before. And, and so that's where God does that, but it's in prayer. It's in those times. So don't neglect this first step in this progression of prayer. But in this, we get to the second step, and we're going we're gonna to spend quite a bit of time on this second part because it's the hinge point of the entire process here, and that is perspective. In Peter's time of prayer, this vision that he has alters his perspective. And there's, again, three steps still after this one, but this is the hinge point. Everything else after this is determined by this second point of this process. Based on the answer to this question, we'll answer what do you do when your beliefs are turned upside down. So let's keep moving along here and look at this vision that Peter has in his prayer time. Acts chapter 10, starting again back up at verse 9 through verse 18. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Peter, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. So here in Acts 10, we get a front row seat to Peter wrestling with his entire belief system being disrupted. Everything about his laws, customs, cleanliness, all of that is called into question. And I think a key part here is verse 17. It says Peter was perplexed by this vision. No kidding. Everything he's ever thought is now, way, what's going on? God, what are you doing? Think about this, the first part of this. Is this sheet of unclean animals first falls from heaven? So Peter's probably thinking, why are these unclean animals in heaven? Why, why are, wh wh this is weird. Why, why are they, they didn't come from the depths. They didn't just appear. They came down from heaven in this sheet. That's really the first step here in his thinking. This is weird. This is different. And then the, the most perplexing thing is when God tells him to kill and eat these animals. These are unclean animals. It's against the written law of God from his people for hundreds and over a thousand years. This has been against the law, and God's telling him to break the law. Peter is devoted to obedience to the law. Why would God do this? But here's the tension, I think, in this moment for Peter that sometimes, I think many times, we face. The tension is this. We can analyze what God says and does, but we should never criticize what God says and does. There's a tension there. We can analyze it, but not criticize it. And this is really where Peter honestly went a little too far. He's wrestling with it. He's thinking about it. He questions it. But then he argues with God about it. He literally flat out just tells God, no, I'm not going to do that. You're telling me to do this thing. I'm not going to do it. That's, that's a pretty strong statement from old Peter here, but he's used to kind of putting his foot in his mouth. He's a, he's a pro at that. Maybe you and I can relate to that sometimes. He strongly objected to his perspective being challenged or changed 
or altered, so much so that he just flat out told God no. Now, everyone has a perspective, right? So, so the issue here is not do you have a perspective about whatever it is. The issue is do you have a proper or improper perspective? The question is do we have a correct or incorrect perspective? Is it accurate or inaccurate? It goes back to the example of the kids at the beginning. Based on their worldview, the way that they see life and see the world, they had these crazy ideas that we see as crazy, and later on they saw as crazy, but that's what they thought was real at the time. Their perspective was only what it was, but it was incorrect, it was improper, it was inaccurate. That's why even in courtrooms, in trials in court, multiple eyewitnesses are always best because you can put a full picture, not just one person's perspective about what they saw or heard or experienced. The more that you have, the, the more 360 degree view you can have to get to a better um, picture to form. And that's why hearsay is not allowed in a court. He said, she said. That's not admissible because it's someone's perspective, which may be very skewed one way or the other. Think about this. Even people who do the most terrible things imaginable think they are right when they do those things. The worst kind of person you can imagine, right? Their perspective is they're right or they're convinced somehow that they're doing the right thing or at least have the right motive for even doing a thing that maybe is not so good. Perspective is a tricky thing. So the question again is not do you have a perspective? The question is are you willing to change your perspective if God reveals it to be faulty? That's the challenge that Peter is facing here. If, if God reveals that my perspective is not aligned with his, am I willing to alter that perspective? Maybe for some it's a social issue. You have this strong belief about this social issue, but the more that you, you know, get to know God, the more that you study, the more that you read the Bible, the more that you hear about what God thinks about that issue, you're like, maybe my perspective is off on that. I mean, it's a strongly held belief, and based on my experience, I really believe this to be true, but I'm just not seeing this to be what God thinks. So what do you do? Are you going to argue with God about that? Are you going to say, well, my opinion is more important than what God says, many times we do that. So it's not about our feelings or experience, but it's about are we willing to change that perspective if God reveals it to be faulty. Maybe it's a situation in your life and you've argued with God about that. No, I know you want me to, just like Peter, I know you want me to do this thing, but I want to do this other thing. That other thing's too uncomfortable for me. It's too much of a leap for me. It's, it's too messy. It's too strange. It's too odd. I don't want to take that step or take that risk or take that chance or have that conversation. I don't want to go there. And so we, we try to weasel our way out of why God's wrong on that thing. And we end up probably looking and feeling pretty foolish because God is always right. But we have to learn what that perspective is, what that step is, and find out if we're misaligned with God's perspective. Because the danger is the moment that we think we have it all figured out, that's the moment that we have nothing figured out. And the moment that we think we know more than God and his direction and, and his determination and his decision and his word, then we know nothing. So that's the dangerous spot that we can find ourselves and That's why this point is so crucial, perspective. Am I willing for my perspective to be pliable if God needs to change it, alter it in some way? So it's not that we don't have strong beliefs, again, but it's if God reveals flaws in those, will we submit to him? And that's what Peter's learning here in real time in Acts chapter 10. 
It says here that the vision was repeated three times. Now, there's a lot of numerology stuff in there. Was it because he denied Christ three times? Maybe. I just think it's because Peter was kind of boneheaded like me and had to have things repeated to him more than once, right? He had to see this thing multiple times, and finally he's like, hmm, there's a theme here. Let me see if I can figure out what's going on. It's, it's three times he had to have this thing happen. The sheet falls down with these unclean animals, kill and eat. Three times this vision happens. It took a while for Peter to get there because his resistance ran so deep. His perspective was so ingrained in him. God had to get through to him. But really what we see here, I think, also is that his vision revealed a deeper problem in his heart. And it was, I think the problem here is, resistance to outsiders, which is the theme of this series, outsiders coming in to the fold of God through Christ. Some scholars even go so far as to say there's possible racial discrimination in Peter's heart. He wants this to remain a Jewish thing, and everybody else can just stay out. This Jesus thing is for us, not for them. So they, they go that far. I don't know if possibly you can read that into the text there. There's possible prejudice in his heart and us versus them. But there is this aspect even with the prophet Jonah who had a very similar mindset as Peter. Jonah is an Old Testament prophet, so he's a pretty good guy. Like He, I'm sure, believed the law and obeyed the law and wanted to serve God. Yet, when God sent him to an outsider nation and said, preach to them so I don't destroy them, what does Jonah do? He runs the other way. And some people say, well, it's he was afraid, or he didn't want to. But no, 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 Jonah tells us at the end, he finally, you know, after there's a storm at sea, and he's thrown overboard, swallowed by the whale, vomited up on the shore. Then he goes and preaches. They repent. They're saved. Jonah tells us why he ran. Here's what he says, Jonah 4, verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Now, wouldn't you think that's a good thing? Not for Jonah. He says, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? So you would think these qualities of God, you know, slow to anger, unfailing love, you'll forgive. That's great. Those are good qualities, right? But Jonah's like, no, 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 I wanted this evil outsider town destroyed. I didn't want them to be saved. That's why he ran. We see a little bit of that here, I think, in Peter. The scholars point to a similar vein in Peter. He's resistant to outsiders receiving the gospel. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a different vein of Judaism, but it's still Judaism, right? He had to kind of get over this resistance in this perspective that he had. But God's using this vision to disrupt his perspective. And I think that's, again, why he uses, and Peter sees this, he uses the unclean and clean animals as a stand-in for unclean and clean people. So what he says is, you can do this. God says to, to Peter in this vision, don't say that something is unclean if I've made it clean. If I've made a way for anyone to come in, then they can come in if they go through that way, which we'll get to here in a minute. So Peter's learning this lesson. Jesus is for everyone. There are no outsiders. Salvation is available to everyone. There are no outsiders. But this is a huge shift in his perspective that he had to get through. And hopefully as we see our perspective challenged by God, we will also alter that. And this, understandably, is a lot for Peter. 
It's a lot for him to take in. And what he doesn't even realize yet is that what God's doing in his heart, things are already set in motion for him to put it into practice right now, right away, immediately. So uh, let's look at this third step then as preparation. God allows him kind of baby steps to get him all the way to where he wants him to go based on this vision. So right after the vision's over, Acts 10 verse 19 Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. Remember, Cornelius has already had a vision from an angel about Peter. That was two days ago. So the men have already traveled overnight and are at the door of the house where Peter is while he's having this vision. So he is quickly having to change his perspective on things, and he's going to be challenged immediately. Not like in three months, not like a 90-day trial period. It's like right now, what you thought and what I changed in what you thought, you're going to be tested in that. And he's already got people literally at the door. So God prepares Peter, and he does it directly here by telling him, okay, you're going to go downstairs. There's three guys asking for you. I've sent them. That's a huge baby step, a huge sign that God gives Peter, by his grace, I think, a heads up that this is going to be weird, it's going to be different, it's going to feel really icky for you, but I'm in this. So God gives him um, this change, this preparation, this baby step, if you will. Because Peter's had limited interaction with outsiders and Gentiles. He's had some, but limited. And boy, does he not, he doesn't know yet how much he's going to get in. He's jumping in the deep end right away, whether he knows it or not. And it's starting now, immediately. But God allows this build-up, these baby steps to happen. It even starts, even where he's been staying, the house of Simon the Tanner is already a baby step preparing his heart for what God's going to do. Because tanners handle carcasses of animals, which are unclean. So Peter's already been staying, Acts 9, the end of Acts 9 says he'd been staying there for a long time. So he's already taken a baby step by going into this house where it's really an unclean environment for him to be, yet something in him had him take that first little baby step. And then God says, after the vision, these men downstairs are from me. They're Gentiles, they're outsiders, but I've sent them. Another baby step. And then Peter talks with these men. That's kind of another baby step for him. He could have refused them. He could have said, I'm not going to talk to you. Please go back where you came from. But he discusses with them, and they tell him, we've been sent by a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He had a vision. He told us to come find Peter. Are you Peter? Okay. And so, but then it's getting late, and they have to travel at least over a day's journey. And so the next baby step for Peter is he invites these Gentiles, these outsiders, to stay with him where he's staying. That's, that's not a small thing for Peter to do. It's the next sort of baby step. And then the next step is that he travels with them for two days or a day and a half um, to Cornelius' house. We keep reading the story. Skip down to Acts 10, verse 24. And here's what we see happens when they travel. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. This first interaction with Cornelius is more baby steps for Peter. 
more little things here culturally that we can see here in these few verses. And it reveals already quickly, within a couple of days, a huge change in Peter's heart toward these Gentile outsiders. So normally, Peter would have, three days before, Peter would have never entered this home. He probably would not have even traveled with these Gentiles. He would have sent them away. They're unclean. I can't be associated with them. I can't be seen traveling with them. I can't, definitely can't enter this Gentile home. And so a couple days ago, Peter would have never done this because his perspective would have said, you should not do this. But God had a different plan. He challenged and changed his perspective. And to be fair, Peter is really walking by faith here because he's doing this quickly. This is a huge change, a big step. I know we're talking about little baby steps, but this is a big thing for him already. He doesn't quite know what to think yet or exactly what the proper protocol is. He even tells them, I really shouldn't be here. I don't really know why I'm here except God told me to come here, and so here I am. It's a big thing for Peter. Also, Cornelius bowing to Peter and his response to that kind of shows a big change in Peter's heart because Roman centurions view Jews as dogs in the Roman world, right? They're, they're subhuman. And so for this man to bow before Peter is a very demeaning thing for Cornelius to do. But the change really is more in Peter because a couple days ago, Peter probably would have soaked that in. He would have looked at that guy and said, that's right. Yeah, you bow to me. Who's the dog now? That, that would have been Peter a couple days ago. He may have even said that out loud. It, might, it would have been in the text if he had not had this vision, okay? If he's even in this home. So it shows a new and improved Peter already quickly emerging in this process, this preparation um, that God has brought him through. And I like the way that uh, commentator John Stott says it this way uh, in his commentary on Acts. He says this, Whether consciously or unconsciously, Peter had just now rejected both extreme and opposite attitudes which human beings have sometimes adopted toward one another. He had come to see that it was entirely inappropriate either to worship somebody as if divine, which Cornelius had tried to do to him, or to reject somebody as if unclean, which he would previously have done to Cornelius. Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. It's a quick sudden unexpected occasion for Peter but along the way God prepared his heart with these small steps one little thing one little thing one kind of big thing one really big thing to then get into an even bigger thing that's coming here in just a moment. Peter knows that Cornelius is a God-fearer he's been told that Peter knows that God led him to where he is even though he's kind of resistant unsure about it Peter has a growing sense that God might be up to something new or different here that might change the world. He's opening the gospel to outsiders. Maybe, God, is that what you're doing here? Peter's still kind of in this unknown phase, obedient, but not quite sure. And so now Peter's got to shoot his shot. He's got to take a chance. So the fourth step in this progression for Peter is, is proclamation. Peter has this growing sense, okay, God, you've led me here for a reason. I know you've led me here. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I feel like the next step is just to share Jesus with this crowd of Gentiles, this group of outsiders who a few days ago I would never have talked to, would never be in their home, would never have been here. But he takes this opportunity to test this new perspective see what happens. So he takes a chance and tells Cornelius and his family about Jesus. Let's, let's read Peter's sermon here. It's just about 10 verses. 
simply preaching the gospel to these outsiders. Then Peter replied, this is verse uh, 34, Acts 10, 34. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. That's a big statement from Peter right off the bat. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Now, I don't want to minimize what Peter does here, but really, in, an, in a very literal sense, uh, or a figurative sense, I should say, he's basically sort of testing out his new theory. He's like a scientist who's in the lab. I think I know this works. Now I've got to test my hypothesis. Or it's like a, a stand-up comedian who's got some new material. I've got to eventually test it and see if it's funny. I've got to see if this actually works, if they'll receive it. So in both of these types of cases, that's what Peter's doing here. I kind of think this is the next step. I kind of think this is where God's leading me, but this is a new audience. This is a new thing. This is a whole different situation than I'm used to. And so he tests out the tried and true gospel with this outsider group. And I don't want to minimize it because it's huge. What Peter's doing here is sharing the most exclusive yet inclusive message ever shared. He's saying at the same time here, Jesus is for everyone, totally inclusive. But everyone needs only Jesus, very exclusive, simultaneously inclusive and exclusive. And this might be a perspective that we wrestle with in our current day because our modern sentiment is fairness, inclusion. Oh, everyone can get in. Everyone will make it. God will work it out in the end. Well, he will, but he's made it clear how he's going to do that. So we don't have to guess. There's no guesswork on what God's looking for or what, or what kind of the one side or the other, the up or down in the elevator of eternity is, right? But sometimes in our Western sentimentality sort of thing, we think, oh, you just do your best and God will, you know, swoop everybody in. Or, and so that's maybe a perspective that we wrestle with in our culture, in the West, especially, specifically, um, that really Scripture tells us that's just not the case. That's what Peter tells these people. And and it's interesting because he's taking a risk here, because the exclusivity might offend them. The message might offend them. So you're saying that we're not currently right with God without Jesus? That's exactly what Peter's saying. But we have the same issue today. And so Paul, later on in Romans, I want to read this, um, then we'll move on to the last point and close. In Romans 3, Paul makes it the same point very clear in his writing. He says this, well, well then, should we conclude that Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we've already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. 
Skip down to verse 21, Romans 3.21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with God, to me, to me be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So Peter and Paul are in perfect unison here in their message to whatever crowd and whatever setting, whatever day and time and place, location, century, continent, doesn't matter. The old perspective is there's insiders and outsiders, and the way to get in is through this law of Moses. But now, through this rooftop experience, Peter and then Paul, definitely reaching the outsider specifically, says, no, 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 that's not the way. Jesus is the way because he fulfills the law of Moses. He came to do what the prophets said. That's what Peter says in his sermon. Christ did fulfill the law. So we're obeying the law because we obey Christ, and you can do the same. The promise is for everyone, Peter and Paul both tell us. The power of Peter's proclamation is that the only answer is Jesus. We all have the same problem, no matter where we're from, what our background is, what our experience is, what our upbringing is like. It's not about being good enough or doing enough. It's simply belief in Jesus, and that is good news. That's the proclamation that he tests out. But then you're like, okay, how does he then know that he was right? Like a scientist knows that they're right because their experiment turns out the way they thought. You know, or a comedian trying out new material knows it's good because the audience laughs at the new jokes. So how does Peter know? What's the proof? That's the last step here for Peter. What's the proof that this whole perspective change I'm going through is actually accurate? And we see here at the end of Acts chapter 10, after his sermon, Acts 10, verse 44, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out onto the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking with other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. So the proof for Peter that his new perspective is correct is that these outsiders, who before would have had little to no hope of salvation through the law, have believed Peter's message in Jesus and become insiders. We see even as he, he can't even get done with his sermon, and they're rushing up, you know, to the altar for the time for prayer, for salvation. And that that would be great, right, if that happened, like, you know, any time. So, um, so they receive salvation, even spirit baptism with speaking in tongues is referenced, and then water baptism, the same experience of Pentecost that Peter had a couple years ago. So I love that God does this. With the outsiders, it's the same experience, the same Holy Spirit, the same salvation, the same power, the same signs. Everything is the same. So now there's no room to say, well, they received a different thing right? Theirs was lesser because it was different. We had this other thing happen at Pentecost, so we're kind of number one, and they're on the second level. It's the same experience. That's partly the proof here. But really, the proof of Peter's new perspective is for Cornelius and the, and the outsiders, but also for Peter. So one, one thing I read this week said it this way, Cornelius was a changed man with a renewed heart, but Peter is a changed man with an enlarged heart. Like, you know, at the end of the Grinch that stole Christmas, his heart grew three sizes that day. That's kind of what Peter's experienced here in this moment after his sermon. He's seen, okay, God, I get it. This is for everyone, even these Gentile 
outsiders. And here's how we know that. He takes the baby steps, he makes the proclamation, he welcomes them in, and then he stays with them for several days. Old Peter would have never done that. So the proof for Peter is not so much the outward results of salvation, although that is part of the proof, but the real result is in his own heart. The real result is in himself. He knows this new perspective, while unexpected and shocking, is God's master plan. He knows it in the core of who he is now. What he used to think was insufficient. Now he knows the gospel is for everyone. And I think this same proof is revealed in each of us as we answer this question again. What do you do when everything you've ever believed gets turned upside down? Because as we grow and mature in our faith, we will be challenged and stretched in our beliefs at times. Our perspectives will be tested to the breaking point. So may our attitude and prayer be, God, whatever you want, I want. Wherever you go, may I go. Whatever that looks like, it might be different or uncomfortable. It might stretch me, but God, stretch me. Do exactly what you want in me and through me. May I be receptive and obedient to whatever you want to do in my life. May I bow before you and give you my pride, my preferences, my perspectives to simply do what you're doing, to be a part of your thing. Not, not that you attach to whatever I'm doing, but that I can do be a part of what you're already in the middle of doing. So I can see the proof of your power working mightily in me and through me. That's the right answer. Now, what that looks like is different, but, that, but that's the right answer to what do you do when everything you've ever believed gets turned upside down. Is follow this progression from Peter and just see what God unleashes in your life. Let's pray. God, how we finished is our, is our prayer today. Whatever you want, we want. Wherever you go, may we go. May we be receptive and obedient to whatever you want to do in us and through us. May we bow before you and give you our pride, our preferences, and our perspectives. Mold us, shape us, alter us to be more like Jesus. To see the way he sees to love the way he loves, to love the people that he loves, to do the things that he did, even though it might be uncomfortable or different or different from what we're used to or apart from our preferences. May we lay all those aside and say, God, wherever you're leading me, may I go that way. Wherever you're leading us collectively, may we just follow your direction for this church, for our community, for whatever you're doing. God, may we just submit completely to what you're doing. May we get out of the way and say, God, you lead. You're in charge. You're in control. I'm going to do the best I can, as imperfect as I am, to follow you every step of the way, every decision of my life, every thought, every word, every deed. May I just humbly submit to you and see the powerful proof of your work in me, changing me, and then through me, helping others to come to faith and grow in their faith in Christ. Help us to have this same progression that Peter had and see the powerful proof and results of that working out itself in us and through us. Start that process even today as we leave this place, continue it on this week and the people that we meet and the places that we go to make a mighty, mighty difference for your kingdom. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.